Welcome to season six of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Stefano Bini. This season features eight sessions from COVID-19, the orthopedic recovery, a virtual summit powered by DocSF, the Digital Orthopedics Conference, San Francisco. It was streamed live on May 29th, 2020. The summit was a global conversation on the challenges of resuming patient care in the context of an uncertain future and an ongoing pandemic. Let's join over 1,000 registrants from around the world and the world-class speakers DocSF is known for on the DocSF virtual stage. Welcome to session four of COVID-19 Dirt Response. The recovery powered by DocSF in partnership with the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery and the UCSF Department of Orthopedics. We're also joined by the American Telemedicine Association and the Orthopedic Research Education Foundation. This session is titled Return to Work Responsibly, uh, the AOS Guidelines. And we're honored to be joined again by the Joe Bosco, who joined us last time. He's the president of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery, also vice chairman for clinical affairs at the NYU Langone Department of Orthopedic Surgery and professor of orthopedic surgery at the same hospital system. Given his role in New York City and given his this, the being the Senate of the United States and his role at the Academy, there's no better person that could be here to join us today to uh, go over some of these questions. So, Joe, I'm going to turn it over to you. Thank you again for joining us, and we look forward to hearing from the Academy. So, I'm bring up your slide deck. Thank you, Stefano, and, and uh, thank you very much for uh, allowing me to speak. So I know you've heard a, a bunch of folks before me talk about how they're coming back to work and what the process is. So, but what I'm going to spend the next, you know, half hour or so talking about is that, you know, we are going to survive this COVID pandemic, but what the Academy and what we're looking to do is to, to look at how we're going to thrive in the post-COVID-19 era. I think all of us understand that even after this is over, we are not going to be the same as we were before. You know, Churchill said, never let a good crisis go to waste, <laughs> right? So this is a crisis and this crisis has allowed us to accelerate some of the uh, things that we were doing before. And not only us, but uh, healthcare has accelerated. So we're going to talk about emerging strong in the post-COVID era and quote the new normal. So, and we'll talk about four, what I believe, paradigms, I hate that word, things that will are not going to go back to normal, things which had been gradually changing and evolving before COVID, and that COVID was the accelerating disruptor that's really launched them into hyperspace. And they are healthcare consolidation, you know, the, uh, the consolidation of healthcare industry, physicians, practices, hospitals. Two is distance learning, right? People aren't going to go, uh, people over time have been shying away from going to group meetings and just anyone who has a kid in college or medical school knows that, you know, they don't go to lectures anymore. They learn from a distance. And this certainly has accelerated that. Shift to outpatient care. What I mean by that is that as we, uh, you know, orthopedic surgeons, by, by and large, 90% of what we do, we don't need a hospital. We just need an OR, a clinic, a place for our healthy patients to recover. And, and, and this uh, pandemic has certainly accelerated that because now patients don't want to come to a hospital either. And also telemedicine. And look, at, we've talked about that. You know, I will use myself for an example. You know, uh, I remember in December or November in the post-COVID era, you know, trying a couple of telemedicine things with some patients. You know, the, the hardware was wonky. The patients couldn't figure it out. So after about two minutes, I just said, but the heck with this and left, right? But now I'm seeing 20 telemedicine patients at a time. You can talk to them on your phone. So this is certainly accelerated telemedicine. We'll have some time for Q&A. 
So COVID-19, how has this been a catalyst for change? Basically, in a lot of ways, it's been the quintessential uh, disruptor. We have an unprecedented global health crisis. No one uh, saw this coming. It's classic in a number of ways. It's accelerating prevailing trends. So again, there was a trend toward using telemedicine. There was a trend towards outpatient surgery. There was a, you know, a trend towards healthcare consolidation. There was a trend towards distant learning. But this crisis has accelerated these trends. You know, it's better patient access, safety, access to education for a physician, and practice consolidation. So first, we're going to talk about consolidation of our healthcare industry. So what is the healthcare industry? Well, it's a three trillion dollar a year industry in the United States. There's providers, you know, physicians hospitals. There's the industry, you know, the, the pharma industry, the medical device industry. There's payers, you know, and commercial payers. The government is now pays for at least, at least 35 to 40 percent of all health care. It's going up to 50 percent pretty soon. Employees, employers are payers now. Uh, and new entities. What do I mean by new entities? CVS Healthcare, right? Whoever thought they be, a, whoever thought that CVS would buy uh, Aetna, uh, insurance company. There's all these vertically integrated uh, entities. Walmart's getting into the fray. So is Amazon. So these are new entities that are d- going to disrupt healthcare. Our three trillion dollar a year business, just just in the United States. So let's talk about individual practices. Well, you know, and this is accelerating. The first quarter of 2020, five orthopedic practice mergers were in the United States. If you look at down in Florida, Chicago, all around all around the country. Only 12% of our, our graduates from orthopedics are going into solo practice. I mean, how think about impossible that would be to have your own solo practice now. I mean, it would take you an hour and a half just to figure out what to do with your uh, medical disposals, waste, with the, amount of, with the amount of regulation. And forget about participating meaningfully in the APMs and bundled payment arrangements. And, and, and frankly, if you were in a group, a private group, and you were sort of on the fence about whether you should be, you know, sell your practice to the hospital or merge, you know, this crisis where you've gone two to three months without making any money may sort of convince you that may that may be a, a good idea for you to consolidate with the hospital, or it may not. But certainly this is uh, accelerating the process. And again, why so much consolidation? Well, you know, you have to negotiate. Uh, the federal government in the, uh, in the Stafford antitrust litigation, you know, you can't negotiate with another practice uh, to an insurance company or a hospital, Right. If you negotiate on behalf of another practice, that's called collusion. But if there's one big practice, instead of 10 practices with five guys, if there's one practice with 50 guys, you can all negotiate together to get a better rate from healthcare systems and payers. And by the way, this is more important because guess what? Payers and healthcare systems are all consolidating. So you have fewer insurance companies, fewer hospitals. So you may not have, you know, instead of having eight hospitals in your area, you may only have two hospital systems anymore. So it's not much negotiation. Economies of scale, obviously. You know, the more bang for your buck in terms of being able to buy things. Uh, stronger regulatory and compliance management. You know, it's the amount of regulatory uh, laws is, is huge, and you really need people to help you with that. Uh, innovation and care coordination. You know, it's impossible to be an APM or do any any type of new practice, whether it's bundled cares or population health, if you're a five-person orthopedic group, right? You need to be in a big group in order to do population health. And that's where things are going. 
Obviously, reduce competition. There's a Hirschfeld index, HHI, which looks at the amount of competition in the area. If it's above 2,000, it's a it's a competitive marketplace, and they do it by summing the squares of the market share of the competitors. So if, if you have one one person has 100% of the business, a monopoly, that's an index of 10,000. If you have 10 people with each 10%, that's an index of 1,000. So you can see the higher the index, the more competi- less competition. And future growth opportunities. If you want to, you know, build a surgery center and, and those things, it's much better to, to have consolidation. The other way that the, the industry is being consolidated is uh, the corporate practice of medicine. More and more private equity. Now, thank goodness, it's really just nascent here in orthopedic practices. But if you look at your dermatology cohorts and look at some of the dermatology literature for the past three years, almost 20% of dermatologists now are owned by corporations. Uh, dermatology practice. It, we can go into reasons why that is, but they're not pertinent here. But, you know, if you look at the dermatology literature, it's replete with, with uh, references to the private equity money in dermatology. That's how about, how about the uh, health system acquisition? Well, frankly, you know, you want to uh, merge with the health system. We look at that as vertical integration, which means that you are practice be becoming part of the supply chain. You know, the, the same person is supplying the OR and sometimes the patients, you are supplying the care. So it's vertically integration. Obviously, hospitals are interested in buying orthopedic practice. Why is that? Because we make money for hospitals, thank goodness. Right? You don't see hospitals going out there trying to buy GY, you know, other types of practices. They want cardiologists and they want orthopedics and they want oncologists because we actually do well for hospitals. And uh, you know, obviously what's in it for us, you know, hospitals, because of site-specific payments, they get more money for our services, which we can we can uh, sort of enjoy that too, and uh, and, and that. So we're just not uh, fee for service anymore. So uh, hospitals are very much interested in acquiring orthopedic practices. How about insurers? The insurers are, are acquiring other insurers, right? And uh, it's a big it's an issue because we when we negotiate with insurance companies, obviously it's easier to negotiate with eight insurance companies than it is to only negotiate with two in your area. And if you're in the area of Blue Cross Blue Shield, is 80% of commercial contracts. There's not much negotiation you can do. Either accept their terms or don't do any commercial patients. And there's areas in this country where it's almost like that. So uh, that's uh, that's an issue. You know, insurance companies are, are acquiring and consolidating throughout the country. And, and 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 they've done a lot of studies. If you want to get bored, you could. Uh, if you have some spare time, you can look at some of these economic studies <laughs> that they've done. And, uh, and 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 when insurance companies consolidate or hospitals and consolidate, two things happen. One, guaranteed the prices go up in that region, two, because there's less competition, and two, is that quality doesn't improve. May stay the same, may decrease, but certainly if you look at the literature on hospital consolidation and insurance companies consolidation, quality never improves, or there's been no study to show the product quality improves, but certainly, certainly costs go up. So, and if you're a value-based person, you know that uh, Michael Porter values quality divided by cost. And if mm-hmm. the quality stays the same and costs go up, guess what? That's less value. And the F- FTC, Federal Trade Commission, that looked at these consolidations is acutely aware of that. So, needless to say, healthcare industry consolidation is increasing. It involves all stakeholders. And it's hard. You can't unscramble. It's like quantum mechanics, you know? You can unscramble the egg, but it's a one in one trillionth time that you can do it, right? It's mathematically possible, but highly improbable if you're into quantum mechanics and Boltzmann stuff. But basically, once these consolidations happen, go in the opposite direction, right? So we need to be aware of this. And again, the financial stress caused by the COVID pandemic is sort of weeding out the weaker folks, and that's leading to hospital consolidation and, and also practice consolidation. 
Okay, how about distance learning? That's not going to go back either. You know, we talked about that, uh, that obviously there's been a slow trend, or maybe not so slow, so distance learning. You know, with, with the advent of video capabilities, the idea that you have to fly 3,000 miles to sit in a classroom to hear someone lecture of, you know, 1,000 people is ludicrous, right? It's an anachronism. You, you know, obviously, if you're in a lecture, if you're in a room having a two-way conversation with a teacher that you can go back and forth with with five people, yeah, it's probably better to be there in person. But you're in a lecture hall of 1,000 people watching a person give a PowerPoint lecture, you might as well be 3,000 miles away. You don't have to be in the same room. And obviously, the academy has looked at this, and you know that's an existential threat to our annual meetings. So we're, we're incorporating distance learning in here. Now, what, what's happened is that the COVID pandemic has increased this. I mean, for instance, at NYU, I have a travel ban. I can't go anywhere. I haven't been able to go anywhere for three months to, to go to any meetings. And you know what? I mean, everyone on this call, just think about when they think is the next time they're going to be sitting in a in a classroom or, or lecture hall with a thousand people arm to arm, seat to seat, right? That's not happening anytime soon, whether it's because you can't travel by a plane or you don't want to be in a hall with all those people. So this has really accelerated distance learning. And so what has the academy done? Well, we have our uh, learning management system. And in, in, in this slide, the diagram took me about a minute to figure out. You guys are much smarter than me. but in blue. 2018 amounts of hits to our site, and on the bottom is the months, right? And so the time of time of year. So there's also there's a diurnal rhythm to when the uh, w- the hits we get. But you can see every year it's more and more at the same period of time. In 2020, it's been accelerated. So 2018, 2019, a slight maybe 10% increase. 2020 pandemic, probably about a 300% increase. So again, it's it. This is a classic graph of, okay, it was gradually increasing with the pandemic, it's accelerated. And, you know, look at our resident board review course and prep course. We said people fly in four and a half days, they would sit there in a classroom, they heard lectures. Now we've done this completely online. And guess what? People like it. It's highly rated by the residents. They, you know, and now you can replicate some of the intimacy you get in a small classroom by, you, you know, utilizing video chat and video conferencing. So it, it's actually worked very well. So again, the academy and other educators are, are glomming onto this pretty quickly and figuring it out. So how about next year? You know, uh, I mean, again, we we had to cancel this year's meeting. Next year's meeting is in San Diego in March. I mean, you know, the California has to be at level five for us to have this meeting. And we intend to have it. But, you know, so we're going to incorporate a lot of distance learning in this meeting as well, just to make sure uh, if it doesn't happen, we can do this. But it's, it's very important and will continue to be important for us. So, you know, basically we looked at uh, distance learning. We looked at practice consolidation. And again, distance learning is not going back. I mean, it's just going forward. How about shift to outpatient care and shift to ambulatory care site? Well, you know, in New York, I'll just tell you the story is that we had, now that we're going back to doing elective orthopedic surgery or non-essential surgery, whatever that means, you know, we have patients that we have, we looked at about 800 patients that whose total joints were canceled during a six-week period. And we contacted each of those patients. And guess what? A third of them don't know when they're scheduled a surgery. A third of them wanted their surgery but didn't want to come into the hospital. Right. So, you know, we, we've done outpatient total joints. We're doing a lot of outpatient surgery. You know, there's been some drive from the patients, but, but a lot of patients need convincing. No, you don't have to stay in the hospital. Now they don't need any convincing. They don't want to come into the hospital. So, again, there's been this trend 
that was driven by physicians and not patients prior to COVID about doing surgery at surgery centers. Why is that? Because we all know we own the surgery center, right? And we partook in the facility fees, which in many times were more than we got for a surgeon's fees. So it's helped us. So physician, and, and guess what? It's patients like it. It's safe. It's better for patients. And it's, it's financially advantageous to us. So the physicians were the ones primarily driving this, taking the patients out of the hospital settings and put them in ambulatory care centers. But now with the, with the fear of COVID and fear of coming to the hospital from other diseases, you know, uh, it, it's basically people don't want to come to the hospital. I mean, listen, I don't remember one patient ever telling me, I don't want to come to the hospital because I'm afraid of getting C. difficile, right? But, you know, now they're afraid of getting COVID, which is, which is worse, obviously. So obviously the ASC market's going up. And again, that will not unwind either. There's a bunch of new ASCs being opened up. Uh, spine surgery, you know, because of our techniques, refining our surgical techniques, our anesthesia colleagues refining their anesthesia techniques, minimally invasive stuff. We can do patients, we can do more and more cases, you know, as outpatients in surgery centers. I mean, look, at, I'm an old guy. I remember when I was a resident in the, in the, in the late 80s, early 90s, patients would come in the day before for Bunyan and stay three days. They, in the hip replacement, they'd stay two weeks in balanced traction, you know, trying not to get a blood clot. I mean, nowadays we're doing outpatient hip replacement. More and more stuff we're doing as outpatients. You know, rotting femurs, they stay one day and they're going home. It's, it, you know, I still remember treating femur fractures and traction for three weeks, so four weeks. So it's a, it's, it's a new world, Tevia, as they say, and it's, a good, it's good for our patients. And it's good for us. And now it's accelerated because patients are, are eschewing hospital settings. So again, this is something that we've been looked at. Trust me, other people in this country have looked at. You know, people are building. You know, the academy is actively you know, working with state societies to get rid of certificate of need regulations in many states, because basically those are certificate of need. A lot of time is hospitals trying to control, you know, a privately owned ASC. So they get to keep all the business. And, you know, in certain states like New York, you have hospitals, which are big employers and they team up with unions. And so the hospital, when it has a union on its side, that's a very difficult collaboration to fight. If you want to build an ASC, I'll just tell you, it's very difficult. We're working to try and open up ASCs, as uh, let our members do it. And physician-owned hospitals, the same thing. This is classic. Now, for, for years, physician-owned hospitals, they were grandfathered in to, to treat Medicare patients, but the newer ones could. But now with the COVID pandemic and the lack of beds, guess what? Physician-owned hospitals can now take care of Medicare patients. And we're hoping that when the pandemic ends, that that is still allowed. So we're working very hard to make sure. So, you know, there's pros and cons, obviously, but surgeon-owned uh, centers and outpatient arenas. But, you know, it doesn't make any difference what the pros and cons are. We know that basically more and more patients are going to be have their orthopedic surgery at outpatient in the ambulatory setting, whether it's in the hospital and go home the same day or at a freestanding ambulatory center. So, again, you know, in our patients here, a lot of them, we have an ambulatory center, we have a hospital. A lot of our patients have told us, I'll have my surgery, but I, want, I don't want to go to the hospital. Even if I just am going out the same day, I want to go to the ambulatory center. So it's been eye-opening for us. And frankly, not, not surprising. So I want to uh, end and, and spend a, a decent amount of time talking about telemedicine. Because I think of all the topics we've discussed, telemedicine is the one that's really been basically blown up you know, and accelerated. And it's not going back, right? So, you know, it was one of the things which we really, really worked 
to do uh, with our advocacy efforts and uh, part of our academy advocacy efforts. We're working with Washington to reduce the regulatory burden on telemedicine and telehealth. Now, four months ago when I tried unsuccessfully my first telehealth visit, you couldn't do a Medicare patient and you couldn't take care of a new patient. And it was, an, it was a commercially insured patient. You may or may not get paid and you're probably getting paid at a lower rate. And uh, they had to be in the same state, right? Oh, by the way, you had to use a platform like on Epic or something like that, you couldn't use your cell phone. It had to be video, and you know, so it had to be this secure platform. So you had all these regulations. And so now, fast forward three, four months from now, now, you know, I can call. This is what happens to me not frequently. And other people, you start off on your on your Epic or your platform. The patient can't get in. Then you say, okay, just call me on my cell phone. Your Medicare new patient. They call you, you. You call them on their cell phone. You go, can you do you know FaceTime? And they're like, well, I have an Android. I can't do FaceTime. And guess what? You do audio. It's just as good as video, and it gets reimbursed. And it's it's an allowable. It's it's allowable. So it's gone from no Medicare only established patients to new Medicare patients. Doesn't make any difference what state they're in. You can do it on your cell phone. You can't use a third party like Skype or uh, or these other things because there's a question of uh, there's a question of security. But you can get on your cell phone and do it. Can't be any easier, right? Even for an old guy like me to do. So, uh, and, again, and, and guess what? Patients, again, this is for my patients. They like it. You know, it's all about the, you know, you see a working top patient every five, six weeks. They have to. They have to come in and see you. And even though nothing much has changed, they could just call in. And my favorite, look, I, I, one day I want to write a book of telemedicine anecdotes, but I'll give you two. One is that, you know, you get to see a lot of patients are comfortable because they're in their own home. You get to see a lot of interesting things, right? And, and, but my most interesting thing was I, a guy that was a heavy machine operator, drove a, was working a crane, right? That, and he was back to work after years after shoulder surgery. And so I'm just doing a checkup with him. And he's driving his crane when he's talking to me on the phone. Forget about driving a car. He's like doing a machine. I haven't watched a video like that since my kids were like three years old. They like to watch construction videos. And I'm like, dude, are you actually operating this crane? And he was. He was happy. He was back at work. You have to take a day off of work. I mean, it's great. So before COVID, like I said, you can only do established patients. You couldn't do audio only. You can if you did med if you did Medicare, patient could not be at home. They had to be in another hospital or Medicare location. Article twenty eight. You had to have a license in the state they were in, uh, and the patient had to come from a low low resource area, and it had to be real time, which they still need to be synchronous. And you can only do it every week or two. You know, so that was a big deal. And, and the, the, the bottom right was the OIG was looking at these, these things in 2018. And some people got, got in trouble for skirting the laws and, and not taking care of these regulations. So there was a, you could get in trouble for Medicare regulations. And that's, that's, that's uh, trouble damages from the, uh, from the government, which is not great. So that's before COVID. So what's happened? Well, we've, there's a, something called the 1135 waiver, which allows in, in time of a, a public health emergency, a PHE, for the uh, CMS and head to uh, make waivers to certain regulations. And so these waivers were um, made in late March, but they were, retro, they were retroactively effective uh, to early March. So remove state licensing restrictions. That means for Medicare, because Medicare is the only thing the government can control, I can see a patient in Georgia even though I'm licensed in New York. I don't have to worry about being licensed in Georgia. Uh, there's no cost sharing or facility fee. Used to be that Medicare patients, as I said, you, they had to be at a Medicare facility for them to do uh, calls, and the facility had a facility fee. No, no more. 
you can remove the time between visit restrictions. So theoretically, I can do a video telehealth visit with a patient. Two days later, they get the MRI. I can call them or do a video chat with their MRI, showing their MRI findings, and I get to charge for both of those things. So there's no time restrictions. It used to be. It can be a new or established patient, and the rates are the same. And guess what? You can do audio now. So you can just call them up on the phone. You know, how many times have we called patients on the phone to talk to them anyway? So it can't be any easier. And they can do their consent at the time of the visit. You don't have to have a consent already done. So they've taken away a lot of restrictions. And as patients like it, they don't have to come in a, a crowded. I mean, you know, how many of us have taken our kids to pediatricians back in the day and were sitting in this uh, office with, uh, you know, 50 other sick kids and say, if your kid is sick, walk through the lobby and go to this one area, right? So you're walking through the lobby with all these sick kids and you get sick yourself and your kid gets sick. Well, it's the same thing with COVID. So patients like this, it's, it's very good for them. So Medicaid, you know, the federal government controls Medicaid somewhat, not as much as Medicare, but they've, they've also worked with the states to loosen up the Medicaid regulations as well, right? Audio-only new patients, many states have done this. Each state has different rules, but we're, they're working on to, to standardize the rules as well. So, uh, so what, are, what are we, so we've gotten pretty far through our advocacy efforts and the advocacy efforts of many others, not just the AOS, but most providers are aligned on this, right? So again, we want to retroactively align all dates of policy to March 1st, and you may have some new codes so we get reimbursed. How about commercial payers? We want them to do the same. Right now, you know, the government or the academy, no one, can, no one really has much sway over commercial payers. But certainly, you know, uh, we want to be able to do video. We want to be able to take it, telehealth with our commercial payers as well and actually get paid. So, and the same thing for E&M codes, make the audio codes the same thing as the visual, audio visual codes. But again, you know, another thing is that, and what are the updates? Again, we're, we're, uh, policies are now retroactive. We're getting paid the same whether it's video or just audio. There's new codes. So all these things are making it easier and removing the regulatory barriers for us to do telehealth. And when you combine the regulatory relaxation with now being driven by patients who want it, right? Patients love being at home talking to their doctor for the most part. And two, what about us? Well, you know, when we go back to the new normal, you know, and start seeing patients in our office, we're going to still have to do social distancing. So the idea that we have an office full of 50 patients or 40 patients waiting because I was held up in the OR or, you know, whatever, had a meeting, and now I walk in, the office is full of patients, that's never going to be allowed again, right? We're going to have patients are not going to be waiting in an office. We're going to be limited to how many patients we can see every hour. And, uh, and so if you're limited to how many patients in person you can see every hour, then you need to see, you need to get a better way for these patients to get access to care. And the way they're going to get their access to care is by telehealth. So it's being driven by us, by patient satisfaction, which is, which is high, and by uh, safety issues. So again, we, uh, we are, we're going forward with this. And, and the most recent thing, the, the latest 1135 waiver, as they call, is allowed different practitioners. So, you know, you could do a psych, clinical psychologist. You know, you could mm-hmm. tell your clinical psychologist about your mom via, via, you don't have to see the person. You could do it on the phone. You could, uh, you know, uh, you can do telehealth for uh, PT, virtual physical therapy. That's a big boon for us. Because now physical therapy, if you're in a bundled care arrangement, physical therapy is a cost center, right? So if you can do virtual physical therapy, that's less expensive, saves money, adds value because the patient's at home. They don't think about it. You have a patient that you just operated on with a knee replacement. They have to go to a physical therapist. 
you know, get in the car and drive to a physical therapist, that's a lot of hardship for the patient. Might as well just do the therapy like a Richard Simmers video or something like that. Do it at home. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, it's like the telecognization, telecognization of physical therapy. You know, that, that's what we're looking at. And patient satisfaction is very high with that. So, and, and that's been great for us too. And, you know, if you happen to work for a hospital, guess what? They get to do their service site uh, billing as well. Pay a little bit more, even in a site of service fee. So the hospitals are happy too. And, uh, you know, obviously all these changes happen very rapidly. And many of our surgeons are on top of it. They don't need this, but some of them need to be sort of led through it. And so we have a lot of resources on the Academy website, the COVID resource site, that talks about telehealth and how you can step-by-step process on how you can incorporate telehealth in your practice to maintain your patient flow and allow you to take the, the type of care for our patients that they deserve. So again, you know, and, and, and it's very helpful. So with that, I'll, uh, I, I can take some questions. Happy Absolutely. Thank you. That was pretty remarkable and shows us exactly what the association is doing for its members. And actually, interestingly, our, our next speakers are the American Telemedicine Association. Definitely a lot of opportunities for the two societies to collaborate in some of these issues. Because at the end of the day, these waivers, Dr. Bosco, they're not changes in the law, right? So there's a possibility for these to kind of revert if we don't be, if we're not active in Washington. Right. When a public health emergency, whenever that is get declared over, then these way these eleven thirty five waivers can can go back. But again, it's like unscrambling the eggs. You know, we have the perfect trilogy. There's huge amount of patient satisfaction. And you know, we can we always, you know, complain about Medicare for a variety of reasons. But one thing the politicians and Medicare pays attention to is their patients. So as patients like it, they're not gonna go back. You know, senior citizens tend to vote. And those over 65 vote, if, if they like something, it ain't going back, right? And so not only do they like it, it's better for patients because they're not getting sick and it's better for us. So you have, you know, you have three things going for it. So I can't imagine us going back to the way things were. Um, which actually is a question that the pageant had. Do you ever expect the telehealth deregulation to be permanent? Again, you know, I do think that, the, that many of the rules that have been relaxed will not go back to normal. Which awesome. ones, I, you know, I'm not Nostradamus, but I think that, and by the way, you know, the Academy is working very hard to make sure that most of these things aren't going back. Question from Renan Cohen, uh, have you witnessed new habits like asking the patients to send images and videos before their telemedicine session in your, I presume this is in your practice, which is tied to another question, which is when you last spoke to us, you're doing about 15 patients a day in telehealth, and is that continue to increase or decrease? So two arms of the same question. Well, I'll answer the first one is that I I will tell you that for new patients, you know, that you're trying to see that that's been a gap in the technology. You know, it's very difficult for new patients to download their images into into our file if they don't come. I mean, we're in Epic and most systems, if the patients come to the office, you can physically download their stuff into their chart. But we're not great at remotely downloading their images, right? We haven't figured that one out yet. But I am sure that when I talk to you again in six weeks, we'll have that figured out. Yeah. That is an issue with certain new clients, right? Uh, and look, don't use me as a parameter. Or maybe you can use me as a parameter because I'm the lowest form, right? So if I can do it, anyone can. And again, no one cares my personal practice. But when I've talked to people around the country, I will say one thing, and I've seen this too, and I'm sure our audiences will agree. When you sprinkle in telehealth visits with the rest of your patients during the day, it's not great. 
because you know they're on the phone for 15 minutes waiting. So what my my colleagues that have this down will do their telehealth visits at the end of their day, right? So they'll get those they'll, they'll do their in-person visits, and at one o'clock or two o'clock they'll stop and do their telehealth visits. So they go from patient to patient because it's hard to see a patient and get on the phone and see it. Because the other thing is, you know, it takes a couple minutes to get the to get the telehealth medicine up and going, right? They got to dial in. You have to dial in. There's some futzing around, as we say in New York, a little bit. So it works more better, more efficiently if it's done, you know, uh, right in a row. And and as part, I will say this: as part of the reimbursement, you know, people are like, well, if I get a bill at nine nine two one three, I need to have three things on my physical. Well, obviously, telehealth, you're not doing a physical. So they, what the government has done is they changed what you have on your, uh, what you document. It's changed and you have to document the amount of time. So you, you can still charge for a high-level consultation or a high-level office visit if you, if you attest on your note that you spend a half hour with the patient or 15 minutes or whatever it is, instead of documenting the H&P. You know, I mean, a uh, physical exam, obviously difficult to do over the phone. You started by talking about distance learning, a topic near and dear to our heart. We're doing distance learning right now. And the academy uh, embracing it. You guys have done an amazing job, and I love the data you showed of the increase in access to these technologies. CME is that going to be an issue? Granting CME over the web? No, it's not an issue. I mean, a lot of CME, a lot of CME courses are over the web. In fact, one thing I'm most proud of our academy has done, and kudos to our staff. I had nothing to do with it. Is you know, it was a you know. It was a big deal to, to cancel our meeting. And within a week after canceling the meeting, these guys were already figuring out how to have a virtual meeting. All the content, you know, all the, all the posters, all the lectures, most of them, they're, they're audio video now. You can go there and you get your CME. You can get your 38 hours. You can get whatever you want, your, your CME, because we need to do CME, that's for sure. So it's available from the academy and because uh, we know that's a big service we buy our folks. And for those, those out there who care, you know, you could put your uh, these academy presentations and talks on your CV as well. Oh, that's right. That's a very good point. <laughs> Thought about that. We can actually give you a raise. Tell Val he's got to give you a little raise because your CV is a little bigger now. <laughs> Fantastic. He's actually on the line watching. So, um, yeah, thank yeah. you, uh, <laughs> Joe. You know, I'm going to sort of call something, but I'm, I tell you, on the technology side, a very interesting thing that's, that's happened. There's at least one group in Europe. They're trying to build out a blockchain. Uh, to connect and track CME. It's immutable, it's trackable, and it's a perfect application of that technology for CME and maybe that's something the Academy is thinking about doing as well. Because yeah. the blockchain technology is really a powerful tool for this for tracking CME. And uh, with that, I'm going to say thank you. Thank you again for going through the long list of things the Academy is doing on our behalf and it's successfully so. And I look forward to, uh, again, the ATA is coming up next and I think there's a, there's an opportunity for us to work together with them. Listen, it's my pleasure. Congratulations on organizing these really meaningful uh, meetings. I mean, all these people you have, it's a great, great job. And uh, I'll be listening to the rest of the speakers. Thanks, guys. Thank you, sir. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. We aim to provide our global audience with practical and actionable knowledge for modernizing the way they deliver care to the orthopedic patient. If you like the podcast, please rate us on your favorite player or tell a friend. It only takes a minute and it makes a huge difference to us. Many thanks to our friends at Outcomes Rocket, the Health Podcast Network, and our producer, Dr. Sheila Toro, for their work on this season. Be well, stay safe. See you next time on the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. Podcast.